Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. Chapter 6 in the Gospel of John finds us back in Galilee. It contains all that John has to say about a period of many months of ministry for the Lord. Roughly two dozen events that were recorded in the other three Gospels were not included by the Apostle John. He picks up the life of Christ after the return of the twelve disciples from their mission to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. John chapter 6, and we start our study with verse 1. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him, because they saw his signs which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? Then Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about five thousand. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, so that nothing is lost. Therefore they gathered them up, and filled the twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Then those when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. I have mentioned before the true testimony that comes to us from a place referred to as Hell's Kitchen. It's the most dangerous part of New York City. After her redemption in Christ, a Puerto Rican woman named Rosa wanted to serve, but she didn't speak a word of English. She had to use an interpreter to plead with the pastor, Bill Wilson, telling him, I want to do something for God. He didn't know what to have her do, but she kept at it. She insisted. So he decided to put her on one of their buses that went out into the neighborhoods to pick people up for church. He told her to just ride a different bus every week and love the kids. So that is what she did. That is how she offered what little she had to serve Christ. She rode the buses. They had 50. She would 
find the saddest looking kid on the bus, sit down, put the kid on her knee, and then whisper the only words that she knew in English. I love you, and Jesus loves you. After several months, she became attached to one little boy. Because of him, she decided to ride just that one bus so she could be with him on the way to and from Sunday school. The little boy went every week with his sister, but he never said a word. All the way there, Rose whispered over and over again, I love you and Jesus loves you. But the boy never responded. One day, the bus stopped to let the little boy off at his stop. Before he got off, Rosa was surprised because he hugged her and got out the words, I, I love you too. That was 2.30 p.m. At 6.30 p.m. that same day, the little boy's body was found stuffed into a garbage bag and placed underneath the ladder of a fire escape. His mother had beaten him to death. An unbearable tragedy other than knowing that some of the last words that he heard were of love. Love by this woman and love from the Lord Jesus Christ. These words came from a woman new to the faith. She barely spoke any English, but she knew enough to communicate the love of Christ. She offered up what little she had to make a difference in the life of another. The text of John 6 is a well-worn path, but the lessons are powerful. God uses the insignificant, the overlooked, and the little, because when placed in the hands of Jesus, our human weakness becomes more than enough. Take a look at how we begin with our first few verses in John. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him, because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. John begins verse 1 with the words, After these things. A number of months have gone by from chapter 5 to chapter 6. The scene is on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, also referred to as the Sea of Tiberias. Here's how that happened. In 20 AD, Herod Antipas started a Roman city on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. He named this new city after the Roman emperor, Tiberius, and you can just imagine that the Jews didn't want anything to do with this. They wouldn't step foot in a Roman city that had been created in their land. But over time, the city of Tiberius gave its name to the lake, and the Roman people were calling the Sea of Galilee the Sea of Tiberius after the name of this Roman city. Now, before we can move forward, we need to wrestle with the historic backdrop of what was going on in the land of Israel. So turn, if you would, to the Gospel of Mark, heading to Mark chapter 6. Herod had already killed John the Baptist. In fact, Matthew 14 records that word had just made it to Jesus that John the Baptist had been executed. Other than the death and resurrection of Christ, the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels. This was a significant event in the ministry of Christ. We find it recorded in Matthew 14, Mark 6, and Luke 9. Each of the gospel writers has something to say about this miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. And when these accounts are all put together, a very interesting story begins to unfold before us. 
Keep in mind, as we look at this, this is right before our text in John 6. This is right before the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus sent out his disciples preaching and teaching throughout the land of Galilee. Mark 6, let's begin with verse 14. And notice how Herod reacts to the ministry of Christ. Now, King Herod heard of him, for his name had become well known. Herod had heard about Christ, notice, and he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Others said, it is Elijah. And others said, it is the prophet or like one of the prophets. But when Herod heard, he said, this is John whom I beheaded. He has been raised from the dead. Word was getting out about Jesus. They knew he was at least from God, but who was he? Skip down to verse 30 in Mark 6. The disciples had returned after Jesus had sent them out two by two, starting in verse 30. Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said to them, come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. But the multitude saw them departing, and many knew him, and ran there on foot from all the cities. They arrived before them and came together to him. And Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them, because they were like sheep, not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. When the day was now far spent, his disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and already the hour is late. Send them away that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. This reminds me of the old story of the woman who moved into a small town, and one day she was out hanging clothes on the line. And this old, tired-looking dog wandered into the yard, and she could tell from the collar and how he looked that he had a home. And as she walked into the house, the dog followed her in. Then he sat down under the kitchen table and fell sound asleep. An hour later, the dog woke up, went over to the door, and she let him out. But the next day, he was back. He took up the same position underneath the kitchen table and slept for an hour. This continued for several weeks. She got kind of curious about it, so she pinned a note to his collar that said, Every afternoon, your dog comes to my house for a nap. Well, the next day, the dog arrived with a different note pinned to his collar, and it read, He lives in a home with ten children. He's trying to catch up on his sleep. You kind of get that type of picture here in the text. Jesus and his disciples didn't even have time to eat. They needed rest. The constant demands of ministry, this huge crowd of people following them. So Jesus heads over to the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, and the people started running around the lake just to follow him. Jesus taught them. Jesus fed them. Jesus had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So as you make your way back to John, recognize that John the Baptist was no longer on the scene. And this means that the people were no longer divided with some following after John and some following Jesus. They all followed Jesus. This was the height of his popularity. They head across the Sea of Galilee. And verse 2 back in John tells us, Then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, 
which he performed on those who were diseased. The crowds followed for the wrong reasons. The mountains rise quick on the eastern side of the lake. This area is now known as the Golan Heights. Jesus found a spot and sat with his disciples. Remember that sitting then was a symbol of authority. The rabbis would sit as they taught. In verse 4, the Passover was near. Notice the wording, a feast of the Jews. John letting us know that the Passover was near. This lets us know that we are now in the second half of the ministry of Christ. Three direct references to the Passover are found in the Gospel of John. This would be the second one, meaning that the cross of Christ was only about a year away. Now, if you're thinking that this little detail added by John sort of sticks out, you're right, it does. But there's a very important reason this is included, and don't miss this. The celebration of the Passover celebrated the exodus from Egypt. It included the slaughter of a lamb in each household. Remember that in this gospel, Jesus is described as the Lamb of God. In chapter 2, we saw the record of the first Passover during his public ministry. And during that time, Jesus spoke of the temple of his body being destroyed, and that in three days he would raise it up. At the first Passover of his ministry, Jesus pointed towards his death and resurrection. Then think of the final Passover recorded in chapter 11 and on. The third Passover of his ministry was at the time of his death. So what about this Passover? What about this one in the middle? Look at the clues and you can get the theme. You can get the connection John was making. The Passover was near. The feeding of the 5,000 took place right before it, right before the second Passover of his ministry. It was springtime in the land of Galilee. And the bulk of the teaching in this chapter is about Jesus Christ, the bread of life. The people would have been thinking about unleavened bread and the manna that God had provided long before in the wilderness. Jesus proclaims in chapter 6 that he is the bread of life. Skip down to verse 33. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. This brought about division. Take a look at verse 41. The Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And again, skip once more down to verse 47. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Meaning that once again, at the time of the Passover, Christ was pointing forward to the redemptive work on the cross. You see, we need to remember that in the first century, the Hebrew people had turned the Passover into a time where it was almost like the 4th of July for us. It was a rallying point for the nationalistic zeal of the Hebrew people, where they look forward to the coming of the Messiah. This is part of why down in verse 15, we will see that they wanted to make Jesus a king. 
But the Lord Jesus Christ, he turned the attention of the people back to the redemptive work of God. Before we move on, I want you to think of the parallels between this passage in John 6 and the exodus of the nation of Israel, because the celebration of the Passover celebrated the exodus from Egypt. In Exodus 14, the Lord guided the people across the sea into the dry and mountainous land of the Sinai Peninsula. Here in chapter 6, we have the Lord crossing the sea, and we have the people coming out to a dry mountain region. In Exodus 16, we have the people of Israel murmuring and grumbling for food, and the Lord provided manna. In John 6, the people were hungry, and not only did the Lord provide food, but he told them that he is the bread of life. The parallels of the Exodus and of this passage in John 6 is amazing. And it should not surprise us to read accounts of Jesus feeding the 5,000 and having control over the sea. Because when the Jews celebrate the Passover, even to this day, two events that they still reflect upon are the control of the sea and the feeding of the manna. You see, we tend to think that the Passover just celebrates the lamb, but the Hebrew people also celebrate the entire Exodus rescue by God. They recognized that in the Exodus, God was announcing that these were his people. He was setting them free, and he alone would preserve them by providing food for them and rescuing them from the sea. And so we must understand that for the Hebrew people, control of the water and God's provision of food, they understood it pointed to a direct act of God and would have caused them to reflect on the Passover. So the first part of verse 5 teaches, Then Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing a great multitude coming toward him. We get the full picture when looking at the other gospel records. They tell us the people stayed there all day, listening to the teaching of Christ. Matthew 14 teaches us that it was now evening. Mark 6 records the day was now far spent. It was getting late. The Lord's heart went out to the people who were getting tired and hungry. But at the same time, the Lord saw an opportunity to teach his disciples an important lesson. Take a look at the rest of verse 5. He said to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? John 1 already taught us that Philip came from the town of Bethsaida. Now, Bethsaida was at the north end of the lake, not that far away, five or six miles. It might have been the closest town. So the idea was, Philip, you're from around here. Where can we buy some bread? It would be hard to imagine any market having enough bread on hand to feed such a large group of people. If you put the different gospel accounts together, here's what we know. Earlier in the day, Jesus asked Philip where they could buy bread. But then later, after the disciples thought about it for a while, Mark 6 and Matthew 14 tell us they came back to the Lord and said, send the people away so that they may go to the surrounding fields and villages and buy loaves for themselves, for they have nothing to eat. They had no solution, and Philip acknowledges this in a minute. Jesus let them sweat it out. He waited until evening. He wanted them to grow in their trust and their understanding. And so we read, starting with verse 6, But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they 
among so many. The Lord already knew what he would do. He was testing Philip, testing the disciples, not out of cruelty, but to build faith. Jesus was not stumped. He wasn't taken off guard. But if Philip truly understood who Jesus was, it should not have been a problem for Philip to believe that the Lord would provide. I guess the same goes for us, doesn't it? If we understand who he is, we should not be questioning his ability to provide for us. So Philip responds by doing some math. 200 denarii are not enough, even if everyone just had a little. Remember that a denarius was a Roman coin. Matthew 20 teaches that it was the pay an average person would receive for an entire day's worth of work. Philip was saying, even if we took the pay of one man who had worked 200 days, it still would not be enough. And even with that, no one would walk away full. According to one estimate, this would have been enough to buy 4,800 quarts of barley or 1,600 quarts of wheat, which wouldn't have even been close to being enough to feed this group. Now remember, Philip was there back in chapter 2 when Jesus turned the water into wine. He should have known the power of the Lord. And the entire idea of buying that much bread was just ridiculous. But that's the point. What is impossible with man is more than possible with God. Philip's response is typical of what we might say, looking at the situation from our point of view. Instead of what God can do, We tend to look at our resources and our ability instead of trust in God's perfect plan. Philip might have thought the situation was hopeless, but it was not. Andrew had been looking around. He saw a boy, and the wording means a little boy, and this boy had come prepared. Andrew had also been doing some math. This boy had five barley loaves and two small fish, but what were they among so many? Barley was the food of the poor. This was the cheap bread that the poor ate. Barley was the rough grain used by the poor because the preferred grain was wheat. The loaves were small, flat barley wafers, and the fish eaten with them were normally about the size of sardines. These were probably pickled fish, eaten as a side dish with the small loaves or the small cakes of barley. It was barely enough to feed one hungry boy. It wouldn't have been nearly enough for one hungry man. There were hungry people by the thousands, men, women, and children, and there stood the incarnate Son of God, ready to demonstrate that he is more than able to meet the needs of his people. Take a look at how this unfolds, starting in verse 10. Then Jesus said, make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down in number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples and the disciples to those sitting down. And likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, so that nothing is lost. Therefore they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Verse 10, it literally begins by saying, make the men sit down, make the men recline. I love the details in this passage. I love the details that the word of God gives us. John records that there was much grass in this place. The gospel of Mark records the grass was green. Passover is in the spring. The details back up the timing of this passage because in the summer, the grass gets dried out and brown. 
Understand that according to the traditions of the Jews, it would have been forbidden to have the women and children sit down and eat with the men. And this is one of the reasons we know that the women and children would have been sitting separately and were not included in the number 5,000. But listen to Matthew 14, verse 21. It makes clear that the 5,000 was only the number of men. And they who had eaten were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Mark 6 adds the detail that they were seated in groups of hundreds and fifties. I think a conservative guess would be that there could have been as many as 10,000 people there, counting women and children. Notice again the miracle in verse 11. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples and the disciples to those sitting down. And likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. Stop and think about what took place. No one sees any food except a small fish and barley loaves. With that little bit of food in hand, Jesus gave thanks for the food. An amazing detail because he performed a miracle. But yet he gave thanks. Matthew says he looked up to heaven. Jesus acknowledged his dependence on his father, and then they began to divide it. One meal became two, and then again and again, thousands of times. On and on it went until the entire crowd had been fed. Notice the people had as much as they wanted. The people were filled. So the Lord sent the disciples through the groups of people and told them to gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. All those years later, the Apostle John was still amazed at what he had seen that day. Notice verse 13 again. Therefore, they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. All four Gospels point out the fact that there were 12 baskets left over. It was a Jewish custom to gather up what was left over at the end of the meal but it also showed the disciples and us about the great miracle that had taken place. Feeding thousands was not a problem. The people were full, and more was left over than what they had started with. Take a look at our last two verses, verses 14 and 15. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force, to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself, alone. Verse 14 is referring back to Deuteronomy 18. We have looked at this passage several times in our studies of John. This is the passage that promised the prophet would come, one like Moses. Some Jews of the first century understood the prophet of Deuteronomy 18 to be a reference to the coming Messiah. But all this bread being provided for the Jews in the wilderness right before the Passover, it would have caused many of them to think of the provision of manna as the people fled from Egypt. Those men that said, this is truly the prophet, the one coming into the world, they were not wrong about this. This is exactly who Jesus was. But what they were wrong about is what this meant for the nation of Israel. They were wrong about his kingdom and his redemptive plan. They didn't understand the timing. They didn't understand that the Lord would come twice, first as the suffering servant, with the second time coming as the king to rule and to reign. Their focus was on the healings, the food, and on victory over Rome, not on redemption, not on forgiveness of sins, not on reconciliation with God. 
It did not take long for the people to decide that this was the kind of king they wanted, one who could supply all of their physical needs. Luke teaches us that during that same day when Christ was teaching them, Luke records that Christ spoke to them of the kingdom of God and he healed those who had need of healing. He spoke to them about his kingdom, and I'm sure that many misunderstood his intent. He healed some, and he fed them all. They were ready to make him their king. They already had 5,000 men who could have become an army, ready to rise up and follow him to Jerusalem. But their concept of a kingdom was not his. Some of the people would have understood that the prophet is also the king. Think of the mindset if the first prophet Moses led the people out of slavery to Egypt, would not this second prophet help them to escape their service to Rome? If Jesus was not willing to take on the position of leading them in a rebellion against Rome, they were willing to force the issue by crowning him king and by forcing the government to respond. The Son of God knew what they were thinking. He knew what they were going to do. This was an army without a general, but this is not what Jesus came for. He wasn't looking for a conflict with the Roman government. He was looking for a conflict with the religious establishment. Those who had hijacked the true faith of the Hebrew people. Certainly, he was born king of the Jews, according to Matthew 2. The priests knew, according to Micah 5.2, that the Messiah would be the ruler of Israel. But God was not about to allow men to raise up his son to the highest throne on the earth. Psalm 2 records that it is the role of the father to set his king upon his holy hill of Zion. But at this time, Jesus did not come to set up a physical kingdom. He came to bear witness of the truth of God. Listen to the interaction with Pilate later on in John 18. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would fight so that I might not be delivered to the Jews. But now, my kingdom is not from here. Pilate then said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say it, that I am a king. To this end, I was born, and for this cause I came into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. As Jesus withdrew to the mountain alone by himself, Matthew 14 teaches us that Jesus sent the crowds away. Mark 6:46 records in taking leave of them, he went away to the mountain to pray. Jesus knew that his kingdom would triumph, not by engaging in first century warfare, but by dying on the cross and rising from the grave. Jesus was not headed to Jerusalem to carry a spear and bring judgment. Jesus was headed there to receive the thrust of a spear, and to bear the judgment of men. In Wyoming, there is a place called Fitzpatrick Wilderness. At 11,400 feet above the sea level, there's a pristine shoreline along the side of a nameless lake. This is where a man by the name of Mike Turner was not too long ago. As a pastor, Mike had gone there to take some time to be alone with the Lord. Mike was hiking 60 miles through the Wind Rivers in Wyoming. Four days before this, he had left his wife of 20 years with a bouquet of flowers and a note thanking her for this time she was giving him to do this hike, to spend this time alone with God. As Mike and his dog Andy made their way through a sea of boulders, Mike's feet slipped on a boulder. He leaped to another boulder, hoping to gain his balance. 
but Mike had set a rock slide in motion, and when the dust cleared, Mike found himself pinned between two boulders, right at his knees. Mike was pinned. He couldn't go anywhere. Listen to what he wrote in his journal. About two hours ago, a large rock rolled upon me and trapped my legs. I was very careful. Be sure of that. But I am hurt. I am in your hands, Lord. I don't know what I face. After the initial shock of the rock slide, Mike turned to survival when he realized that he couldn't free himself. Mike carefully unpacked his backpack. He looked over his gear for anything that could help him free himself or that could help him to survive. His greatest concerns were water and the darkness of nighttime that would bring with it the cold. He used the snow around him to melt drinking water. He kept warm by wearing his jacket and stuffing his sleeping bag around the part of his legs he could reach. Mike wrote in his journal, I dreamed of a special time with God, facing the elements, thinking about life, the direction of the church, about my family. Indeed, this has been all of those things only magnified a hundred times. I believe I will survive smarter or wiser, more thoughtful, more aware of limits. I do feel confident in my hope in Christ. God will make a way, either earthly or heavenly. My only dread is not seeing my family and being present with them. This is what I think about. Meanwhile, Diane Turner, Mike's wife, waited and waited and became a little worried nine days after Mike had started his adventure. Knowing that Mike would not want a fuss made over him and knowing that the cost of the rescue party would be their financial responsibility, she waited a little more. But the next day, Diane could wait no longer for her husband, and a call was made to search and rescue. Keep in mind, the search area was huge. It included two national forests, and carloads of the people from their church joined the search. All the while, Mike continued to write in his journal. Listen to his words. I cried and cried out to God, who doesn't seem to care about my suffering and pain and the loss of my left leg. I begged and prayed for some help in moving the rocks, but no one seemed to come. Fill me with peace, Lord. I am ready to die, though missing my family. To live is Christ. To die is gain. I will trust in God. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Backpacker Magazine writes after this journal entry, as his final hours approached, his body shutting down, but it was as though his spirit was opening up. All the questions, all the doubt and anger seemed to dissolve. What remained was the unbreakable bedrock of belief. On the 10th day, Mike wrote, God loves, love dad, Mike. And then there was silence. Again, Backpacker Magazine writes, a boulder could crush his legs, but it could not crush his faith. A full week after the search had been called off and 20 days after Mike was supposed to reach his destination, Mike Turner's body was finally found. We're going to be tested at different times and in different ways. It can be discouraging. We know this, but God is at work amidst the fear and the doubt. You see, when men say it is impossible, God testifies that what is impossible with men is possible through him. Believers grow tired, but God promises us his rest. At times we may feel alone. God reminds us of his love. And if you ever get to the point where you just feel like you cannot go on, God tells us his grace is sufficient and his power is made perfect in our weakness. 
if we find ourselves not knowing what path to take, God promises us that he will direct our steps and that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. If we get to the point where discouragement sets in, we are reminded of the promise that God is working all things together for our good. If our hearts become afraid, God teaches us, fear not, for I am with you. When worry dominates our thoughts, we remember the instruction to cast all our anxieties on God, for he cares for us. And when we lack wisdom, God tells us, I give you the wisdom on my son Jesus, his righteousness and redemption. And if we feel alone, we cling to the promise that God will never leave us nor forsake us. The lesson that Philip, Andrew, and the disciples were confronted with in the wilderness is that we dare not look at our troubles thinking only of our ability of what we can do to solve our problems. Because oftentimes, our struggles are allowed by God himself to deepen our faith in him and to bring glory to him. And the sooner we recognize this, the sooner that we turn to him in time of need, then the quicker it will be that we are headed in the direction that God intends for us. The Apostle Paul spoke about his thorn in the flesh and said, For this thing I besought the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather glory in my weakness that the power of Christ may overshadow me. Therefore, I am pleased in weakness, in insults, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Depend on Christ. Trust Him, knowing that this is the path to victory, even when our faith is challenged. Before we close out, I want to thank you for listening. And if you want to keep current with our studies, there's a lot of ways to make sure that you never miss another episode. You can subscribe by email. You can get our free app for your tablet or phone. You can also use the Apple Podcast app or one of the Android apps and have all of the episodes delivered right to your mobile device. You can find all of the links on our webpage, returntotheword.com, underneath the podcast tab. And if you have a minute, help us out by sharing this episode on Twitter or Facebook, because by telling others... You help us to tell the world of God's amazing grace. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.